Brothers and sisters, would you open your Bible together with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 is kind of like a valley, 12 to 26. It's like a valley in between two mountaintop summits. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to 11 is uh, literally on a mountain, the Mount of Olivet, Jesus gives his charge to his disciples to be his witnesses and to go into all the earth. Fun passage to preach. Exciting, urgent. Acts chapter 2 is then the Holy Spirit being baptized on those disciples so that they receive their power. It's another mountaintop moment. Acts chapter 1 verse 12 to 26 in between kind of feels like this mundane middle. While they're waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the disciples gather together and they do two uh, type things. They have a prayer meeting and they have a committee meeting. And it might feel, you know, even in our church, sometimes these aren't very popular events in the life of the church. But within this seemingly mundane middle, these two decisions the early disciples make in the prayer meeting and the committee meeting reveal to us what I believe should be high priorities for the church. Acts chapter 1 verse 12 to 26 is going to recount to us what seem like mundane activities, but they actually will demonstrate Four mandatory priorities for the church of God in order to be an effective witness for Christ in our world. So as we do, would you stand together with me as we read the scriptures? Today we're going to read a portion of this passage, verse 12 to verse 14. This is God's word. It speaks to us today and this is what it says. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You can take your seats. And while you do, let's turn our attention to God and ask for his help in prayer. Father, uh, I thank you that your word is like, um, like a leveling stick that shows us if we're in line or off-center, level or unlevel. Now, God, I pray that you would help us recognize today whether our contribution to the church life here in Hope Markham is straight or uneven. And God, I pray that you would help us to put your priorities first as our priorities. Help us to see, remind ourselves again of the calling we have as sent disciples witnesses in this world. And with the significance of this calling, help us be devoted to these priorities. In Jesus' name, amen. 
It seems like on mundane activities, but really, these are four mandatory priorities for the church to be effective in the witness for Christ. So what are they? Well, the first is the priority of corporate prayer. In this seemingly valley between two mountaintops, the earliest disciples prioritized corporate prayer. They went back to Jerusalem because Jesus told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait there for the promised Holy Spirit. And while they're waiting there in their upper room, Luke gives a roll call of the who's who well-known disciples amongst the larger group of 120 disciples who were there waiting. And they're grouped into three different categories, and it's really stunning to me to consider that these hodgepods of people who were so disunited, ununited, non-united, what's the right word for the opposite of unity? I don't know. Out of harmony, in discord, during the life of Jesus, now when Jesus is gone, they're together in unity, one mind, one focus in prayer. The first category we see is the remaining apostles, 11 of them because Judas took his own life. We're going to see that in a minute soon and how he did that. 11 men who during the life of Jesus, they were like at each other's throat a lot, always arguing amongst themselves, who was the greatest? But now they're not trying to fight to be the greatest. They're on their knees praying to the one whom they know is greatest among them. The second group of people is simply identified as the women. And these are actually the same group of women that the author of Acts, Luke, identifies in his first volume, Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, Acts, Volume 2. He identifies these women in Luke chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. These were a group of women, five or six, who followed Jesus uh, and were a part of his larger entourage in his entire ministry. And whenever Jesus or his disciples had a bill to pay, these ladies paid it out of their pocket. And now they're still investing into Jesus' ministry, not with their finances, but with their prayers. The third group of people is the family of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' half-brothers, probably three of them. When Jesus was around here on earth, he kind of had a tense relationship with his family at certain times. At one point, his family was so upset with what he was doing, like healing people and preaching the good news, that they told him, you're out of your mind. But now, they saw him crucified and then risen to life, and their attitudes have changed. When they saw Jesus, risen from the dead, walking on his own two feet, after they previously saw him lifted up off his two feet, hung and murdered on a cross. They realized this resurrected man wasn't just our brother and our son. He's the son of God, our savior and our Lord. And they realized they were a part of a larger family of faith. And when the first family of faith, these 120 disciples, gathered together, their first priority was corporate prayer. Is it for you? 
I can honestly say I didn't plan to preach a message about corporate prayer on the Sunday that we have a prayer night. Let's just chalk that up to providence, not coincidence. Certainly not my planning. I'm not smart enough for that. Corporate prayer must be mandatory if we're going to be an effective witness for Christ. So church, let's be devoted to it together. Be devoted to it. It's going to be clear to us as we study the book of Acts that corporate prayer was a part of the culture of the early church. They had a strong and vibrant prayer culture. Culture is to community what DNA is to an organism. The life you see expressed on the whole of the organism is like that because of the DNA embedded on the cellular level of that organism. I'm going to ask you a question that's not hard so you can respond, all right? What color is a polar bear? It's, I said it's not hard. <laughs> what color is a polar bear? What color is a black bear? What color is a panda bear? Right. They're different, and they're different because of their DNA. What you see on the outside exists because of what's embedded on the inside, and that's the same with prayer. Do you see a vibrant prayer culture in the life of our church? When you consider your experiences, your engagement, what you see when you see our church, do you see a culture of prayer? To me, as the pastor of our church, the culture of prayer here seems to be like a growing embryo. I see the first vital signs of true vibrant life in a prayer culture at a church, but I have not seen it yet birthed and grown to maturity like it is in the early church in the book of Acts. And I am praying that it would be, that we would be people empowered by the spirit and devoted to prayer. And like an embryo, culture doesn't develop passively. Culture develops actively when we each nourish it through our own contributions. It's going to take all of our effort to see a prayer culture grow. But let's say it just depended on you. If our prayer culture at this church depended exclusively on your contribution to it, would our prayer life be nourished or neglected? You might pray a lot on your own, the solitude of prayer in what Jesus describes as the prayer closet is sweet. The, my favorite times of the day are the first hour I get in the morning by myself with the Lord and the last hour I get at night by myself with my wife. But God is your father and he loves you and wants you to enjoy a relationship with him. But the father also has other spiritual children who he loves just as he loves you. Do not neglect your spiritual siblings in the house of prayer for the sake of the prayer closet in solitude. I think that for most of us, though, that's not our problem, why we're not devoted to corporate prayer. I think the problem is that we're just apathetic. And I know because for the longest time, I was apathetic. I spent four years in Bible college. I don't remember 
I can't count the amount of times that I had to study God's word. But the times that I was involved in corporate prayer were pretty few and far between. Of all the church-wide services we have in our church, prayer meetings are the least attended, and it's not close. I was really, really blessed by the worship night that we had this past fall. So blessed by it. The unique way that we worshipped, the unique songs and genres and the production that we had, such an encouragement in my soul, and many others as well. 303 people attended our worship night this past fall. We had one worship night. We had three prayer nights. The combined attendance of the three prayer nights didn't meet the attendance of the one worship night. The average attendance of the three prayer nights was 415% lower than the one worship night. Compared to the size of our weekend church attendance, our worship night was 27% of our global church attendance, and the prayer night represented 6.9% of our people devoted to prayer. Prayer's hard work. It's really hard work. We want prayer to be like flying on the freeway, but often it feels like you're just in bumper-to-bumper traffic. In the book of Acts, we, we'll see that they, they clearly counted it as a duty. Like it was commanded and they had to obey. But their devotion to that duty resulted in a delight for the whole of the church that in Acts 2, it says that awe and wonder came across every soul. That's the return on investment in corporate prayer. But we won't find it if we don't contribute to it. I believe in better things for our church in this new year. I believe that this embryo is going to grow and be given birth and that we will see more vibrant prayer in our church. The question is, are you going to contribute to it? The first priority, if we're going to be have an effective witness, is corporate prayer. The next priority also is very, very critical and vital in the life of our church. But by God's grace, church, I want to encourage you. Because I see such strength, such health, such maturity in our church, in this next priority that you should be commended with because so many of you contribute with it. And the, the health I see in our church through this next priority, I believe, can be an example to many other churches in our city. Not only should we be devoted to corporate prayer, not only should we prioritize corporate prayer, but the early disciples prioritized a devotion in conviction to scripture. And by God's grace, I see our church have a strong conviction in scripture. Let's read the text again, verse 15. It says, in those days, so pause for a sec, before I read it, every time you see a parenthesis, that's the author Luke kind of giving a footnote to give you some historical context. All right, parenthesis is a footnote. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up amongst the brothers the company of the persons was in all about 120, that's footnote one, and said, this is Peter speaking now, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now he was among, numbered among us and was allotted a share in the ministry. Okay, here's footnote two. 
Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Yuck. Don't worry, I'll explain why it's important to know about that in a moment. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, I'm not good at Aramaic, I'm sorry, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Okay, Peter speaking again in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Peter stands up and starts this committee meeting. And he believes, because of his conviction in the scripture, that they need to find a replacement for Judas, the 12th apostle of Jesus, who took his own life after he betrayed Jesus. And his conviction for it was based on two prophecies from the Psalms. The first prophecy noted in uh, verse 20 is from Psalm 69.5. Psalm 69.5 said that a prophesied that a close associate of the promised Messiah would betray him and would suffer such a gruesome punishment that the place where he dwelt, no one else would be able to dwell in it. And Peter thought about what happened, and the footnote gives us the context of what happened. Judas was that close associate who betrayed Jesus. The place where Judas dwelt becomes so desolate that it was a cemetery The place where Judas committed suicide, where he hung himself and then fell down and his bowels gushed open, a worthy death for a man who I'd want to curse out for betraying the son of God with a kiss. That place where he died became a cemetery, a desolate land. Peter considers what happened, sees it fulfilled in scripture, and then he considers the second prophecy from Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. And Peter's like, his death fulfilled prophecy, prophecy says that someone needs to take his place, we need to act on what God's word says. He prioritized conviction in scripture, and notice what he considered about the nature of scripture in verse 16. He said, brothers, look at it with me, verse 16, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Do you see the dynamic way that the scriptures came to be? A human author, the mouth of David, a divine origin, spoken by the Spirit. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. That means that while it was written by human authors, it proceeds from divine origin. That means the very words of the scripture are the actual words of God, cover to cover. And if God speaks, by golly, we better be listening. Peter's conviction in scripture gave the earliest disciples Conviction that scripture should have first place in the authority of the church. And it needs to stay in that place in every generation. Is it in your life? By God's grace, I see so much maturity and health in this. And this must be girded up. We must, generation after generation, tow the line of the truth that the scripture is the inerrant, infallible, only authority for all of life and practice in the church. So be guided by it alone. 
whether it's from a pulpit or in your small group, whether it's in your marriage or with your kids, at your job or with your girlfriend, the first and highest authority must be brothers, the scriptures. Is that the first word in your home? Kids, what does God's word say? Is that the first word when you don't know what to do at your job? Honey, I think God's word's telling me this. Sorrowfully, when I look at the landscape of the church in Canada right now, it's so far from that. The first word needs to be brothers, the scriptures, but so often in the church this day, it's brothers and sisters, my experience, then scripture. Or it's brothers and sisters, our traditions, and scripture. Or it's, but public opinion, Uh, scripture. If scripture isn't given first place in the church, the power for our witness will be misplaced and replaced with weakness. Our conviction in scripture must be a mandatory priority. But you might think, I don't know, it's kind of restrictive. I just want to live my own way and this is giving me rules. God's word has boundaries, no doubts about it. But they're not burdensome boundaries. They're for your good. You're created by a loving father in heaven and you were created in his image after his design. They are created this boundary for you, not so that you would be restricted, but so that you would flourish in Christ. You will do well for your soul to be guided by God's word alone. You will do your soul well to find your joy in God's word alone, as Psalm 119 verse 47 says. Psalm 119 verse 47 says, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. You will do well to your soul to hope in God's word through times of affliction, like Psalm 119.92 says. Psalm 119.92 says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. You will do well for your soul to be guided by God's word alone, as it says in Psalm 119 verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Does a conviction in scripture and from scripture guide the way that you live your life? So what was the purpose of them even turning the scripture in the first place? Why were they thinking about this prophet? Remember, they wanted someone to replace Judas's position and be the 12th apostle. So, and that leads us to recognize what their third priority was here. Not only a priority of corporate prayer and conviction in scripture, but also the priority of a concrete witness. Witness sharing about Christ. Concrete, firm foundation, no holes, no cracks. You can build on this. Let's look at verse 21 to 23. Here, Peter gives the qualifications for who can become the 12th apostle. 
It says, So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So 120 people were present. Two people qualified to meet the criteria to be apostle. Matthias and a guy with three names. What is a dude of three names? Funny enough, actually, it's not as uncommon as you think. Some of you have three names. Uh, you've, you have a Chinese name at birth. You have an English name that you were given as a child when you immigrated. And you have a nickname that like only your closest friends and families have. That's pretty much actually why this guy has three names. Joseph is a uh, Hebrew name given at birth. Justice is a Greek name that pretty much means the same thing as Joseph, but in a different language. Barsabbas is is like a nickname. It means son of Sabbath. So it's likely that he was born on a Saturday, the Sabbath, and his family just called him son of Sabbath. But as cool as that is, he's immediately irrelevant because Matthias is the guy that's chosen. Yeah, I know. Sorry, sorry. Dude, three names. But why? Why was it important that they even have a criteria and pick this person? Peter believed the scripture said that they required to have a full number of 12 apostles established as Jesus commanded so that they could have a cohesive and concrete group of eyewitnesses to give witness to the resurrection. And this isn't just important for the first century. This is important for the 21st century. The eyewitness of the apostles is crucial for us today. The reason we have a compelling witness in the 21st century is because it's built on the foundation of the concrete eyewitness accounts of the apostles in the first generation. So church, since we have a concrete witness, let's be certain of what we believe. Be certain of it. And not just certain in your mind, but certain in your heart and in your actions. Don't just know of it in your mind. Authenticate the message with your life. Do you know what it means to authenticate your faith? All of us have to go through processes of identification. Many, most of us have to go through processes of authentication like maybe dozens of times a day. If you have a smartphone, every time you go to open your phone, it, your phone is telling you, prove to me that you own me. That's why you have to put in a password or a fingerprint or give a facial scan because your phone doesn't know that you are the rightful owner of your phone and you need to authenticate that your claim of identity is proven true. An authenticated faith is a faith that is proven true, not because you know the right things in your head, but you live it in your heart and in your life. Do you have a certain faith based on the concrete witness of the first apostles? Is it authenticated in your life? A faith in a Christian that is certain and authenticated will be a compelling witness to a watching world. That means you don't just say you love God. 
your love for God is authenticated by a selfless love for others. That means you don't just say that your heart is purified by Christ, but that you authenticate your faith by choosing to walk in the purity of holiness. You don't just say Jesus died and rose to new life. Your faith is authenticated by dying to yourself, your desires every day, and walking in the newness of life in Christ. When your faith in the gospel built on the concrete foundation of the eyewitness apostles, when your faith is certain and authenticated, you will be a compelling witness to a watching world. A concrete witness is a mandatory priority. A conviction inscription is a mandatory priority. Corporate prayer is a mandatory priority. We have one final fourth one. And that is placing our confidence for the way that God leads our church in his sovereignty. We must prioritize confidence in God's sovereignty to lead our lives in our church the way that we need to go. Prioritize confidence, confidence in sovereignty. Let's look at verse 24 together. It says this, And they prayed. Oh, look, more prayer happening in the prayer culture of the church. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. Apparently both of these men were equally qualified for the criteria that Peter laid out, so, but they knew God cared more than just about the outward appearance. God cared about the heart. So they wanted their decision to be God's decision. So they devoted themselves to two things, prayer and casting lots. Um, casting lots was an ancient process in Jewish culture where if you needed to make a judgment based on two equally valid opinions, you would get a cup and two or uh, stones that were marked based on each of the valid options available. I, don't, I, I didn't have stones, they were buried on snow, but I had different colored Skittles, can we try that? So <laughs> I, have a, I have a green Skittle and, and I have a blue Skittle, right? So if we were the apostles and we're gonna make a decision, we're gonna, we prayed and we shook it and the green one, Matthias, look at that. <laughs> now, to modern Western minds, this is like cringy. <laughs> Wait a sec. You're leaving up a big decision to a game. To a, it's literally a game of chance. That's what you're doing. Okay. Well, this was actually a pattern that was advocated by the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, who made the m most flawless judgments between seemingly valid options. In Proverbs 16.33, Solomon writes, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. This was a pattern of the law. So I would say that if like, you're looking to go to a university and you get accepted by three places, uh, don't let mom and dad know that this is the thing that you want to do to pick your choice. See, this was a pattern of the law in the old covenant. But in a couple days, the Holy Spirit would be baptized on these believers. 
They would make a lot of decisions in the direction of the church where they would need to rely on confidence in God's sovereign leading, but you would see them never again cast lots. In the old, uh, believers today relate to the law, the old covenant, in the same way that a child relates to a legal guardian who has authority of them because their parents aren't there. Uh, until that child comes of age, the legal guardian has full parental rights over that child. But as soon as that child comes of age, the legal guardian has no more authority. The baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the coming of age party for the church. They made many decisions of the direction the church needed to go after this. We never see them cast lots again. What we do see them do is devote themselves to prayer and ask for the Holy Spirit's direction. And the Spirit clearly, directly leads them where they need to go. And we desperately need God's sovereign direction for our church from the Holy Spirit too. There's questions that I'm asking that we need directions in. Lord, where do you want us to plant a church next? Lord, across the street from us are hundreds of non-English speaking people that are right on our back door. How can we reach them when English is the only language spoken from this church, from this pulpit? What, what service project should my small group do next? What compassion partnership should we do next? Maybe you're asking questions that you need direction on too. How can I parent my wayward child? How do I use my finances well when there's so little and I want to give, but I feel like I can't give to the church? How can I be reconciled to my spouse when they're so estranged? Without the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit, we are a car in a snowbank stuck in neutral and CAA is not coming. Sorry if sending you got the car stuck this weekend. I hope that wasn't personal. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we can get in gear and he can drive us where we need to go. So church, let's keep in step, keep in step with the Spirit. We need to prioritize a confidence in his sovereignty, so keep in step with him. Galatians 5 verse 25 says this, if we live by the Spirit, let us Keep in step with the Spirit. The way that the Holy Spirit leads us is kind of like the way that one dance partner leads their other dance partner. If you're going to dance with a partner, someone needs to take the lead. And if you're going to let that person lead and actually enjoy that time of dancing and not break your ankles, you need to follow their steps. Keeping in step with the Spirit means gladly yielding my entire self over to his direction. Admitting I don't know where to go and asking for his help. And Jesus said in Luke 11, the Father will gladly give the Spirit to those who ask. Yielding my entire self, mind, my thoughts, heart, my desires, actions, my lifestyle. And it means if I don't know what to do, and I'm yielded myself to him in the right humble attitude, I test my mind and I test my heart desires according to his word and I let the spirit lead me where he wants to go and I keep in step. 
But so many of us are stuck on the side of the road, wanting leadership of feeling alone and confused, not wanting what to go because we're out of step with the spirit because we're giving into our heart's desires. We're not letting the spirit lead us. We're letting the flesh and sin lead us. But friend, if you believed in Jesus, then you belong to Jesus. And God wants you to enjoy a relationship with him. He doesn't want to share you with sin. He doesn't want to share you with his world. He's jealous for you. He loves you. And he paid for you with the price of the blood of his own son. You are valuable to him. Trust him. Trust that his way is better than your way and repent of your sin. Believe that Jesus' blood is enough to cleanse you of your sin. Turn back and keep in step with him. Believe in him and you will know that you will belong to him, that you are loved by him, and you can trust that his way is better than your way. Keep in step with him and the spirit of Christ will lead you out of anxiety and doubt and fear and into peace and joy. He will lead your family out of turmoil and discord and mean hatefulness and into love and peace and joy. He will lead your small group out of confusion and like, why am I here? And into purposeful meaning direction that actually helps you grow. He will lead our church to be effective witness for Christ. These priorities were mandatory for the early disciples. Do we today have our priorities straight? Acts chapter one was really fun to preach. The mountaintop moment, Jesus ascending into the earth and to heaven and giving us the charge, you're going into the world. Acts chapter two is gonna be another mountaintop moment. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the coming age party of the church, the power that saves 3,000 souls. Maybe it's unfair to say this passage is a valley in between the two mountains. Maybe it's more accurate to say that these priorities are like a bridge that unites the two together. The calling of the church, the power to witness, brought together by these three priorities. Our witness in Christ will be affected when we are prioritized corporate prayer, conviction of scripture, a concrete witness that's certain of and authenticated in our life, and confidence in God's sovereign Holy Spirit. Let's pray and ask for his direction for us now. Father in heaven, we all like sheep have gone astray. We go our own way, but you are the good shepherd and you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. You lead us by still waters, you restore our soul. You lead us in green pastures. You know us by name. So God, I pray that you would continue to speak to us and that when we hear your voice, we would answer and not quench your spirit, that we would listen and obey. Every conviction, every sin put to death, every sense of I need to pray, obeyed and prayed. Every opportunity to share the gospel taken and spoken clearly. Lord God, would you help us? God, maybe our hearts are misaligned. 
maybe the level has shown that we're not level. Oh God, would you help us to set our hearts on you, to yield control, and to prioritize prayer and your word, living an authenticated life, and being led by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.